Fi Ran the Bank is a podcast hosted by Clayton Weir, co-founder and head of product and strategy at FiSpan, a fintech that is enabling banks to provide contextualized, consumer-like experiences to their business clients. Clayton is a leading thought leader in financial innovation and hits on the hottest topics in banking, finance, and the future of payments. And he wants to know, if you ran the bank, what's the one thing you'd go all in on? Please tune in to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, here's your host, Clayton Weir. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to this episode of If I Ran the Bank. I'm super excited to have our guest uh, with us, Andrew Obi. Normally, this time of year, I would be encountering Andrew probably haunting the hotel lobby bars of the big industry conferences. But alas, that will not happen. So we'll have to uh, save our joviality and banter for this very podcast instrument. Um, thanks, thanks so much for taking the time, Andrew. Oh, it's my pleasure, Clayton. And uh, thanks for having me on. Perfect. So why don't you uh, take a minute and tell the audience a little bit about who you are and uh, what you do? Sure. Well, I mean, starting with the, the who I am, uh, as you just said, my name is Andrew Obi. Um, I've got a background in, uh, in both technology and, uh, and operations. I've spent you know, part of my career uh, working in public sector in K-12 education in, in the early parts, uh, running mainframe computing and putting in networks and early days of the internet and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then I've kind of spent the second half of my career in uh, in the private sector, in particular in in financial services, where I've spent about 20 years working either you know in and for credit unions or in the ecosystem that that sort of circulates around there. Uh, I'm currently the, the president and CEO of an organization called the FiConnects Group. Uh, FiConnects is an organization that's owned by a bunch of tier two financial institutions across the country, uh, uniquely both banks and credit unions. So there's often groups that you know work with either of those two, but our organization has been around, and it's it's been around since uh, 2000 officially, when it was formed to basically operate a shared ATM network uh, that the uh, financial institutions all participate in, really allowing them to leverage collaboration uh, among each other and access to each other's distribution to more effectively compete against the larger financial institutions with much bigger you know, uh, spans of control and, and much deeper pockets when it came to, uh, to capital and, uh, and so on. That network today is over, over 3,000 ATMs. So it, it allows the smaller financial institutions to effectively you know, have the same sort of uh, ATM distribution that uh, you know, the larger banks would, would have and, uh, and in a comparable way to the benefit of their, their customers, right? Uh, and then just because that wasn't fun enough back in, in 2016, not too long after I uh, came to the company, actually, um, we started a, a second uh, part of the organization that's, that's really a uh, technology startup. You know, leveraging the the capabilities, you know, both from the the network that we had, you know, physical network and authorization pipeline, as well as you know, sort of the collaborative group that we had built of these financial institutions to again help those smaller financial institutions, uh, you know, better compete in in the marketplace. And we always like to say that we empower financial service providers uh, to accelerate uh, innovation. Cool, that's a great intro, and actually maybe kind of just jump in there and I have a couple questions. So, I mean, one's a comment. So, I mean, FiConnect is kind of interesting in that probably the ratio of people that have heard of it relative to the, in Canada, the ratio of people that have probably somehow benefited or experienced your uh, value proposition is probably insanely divergent, I'm guessing. 
Yeah, I, I think so. You know, we, we always kind of talk about ourselves as, as a plumbing play, uh, right? So we're never sort of a forward brand. In fact, when I uh, came to FiConnex in, in 2015, one of the things that I recognized was, you know, forget the consumer side, but even within the financial institutions, we had a bunch of work to do to increase the, the level of awareness and really kind of connect the goodwill that had, had developed over the years on the exchange network and, you know, that uh, ATM distribution that we talked to connected to the FiConnex brand so that when we wanted to talk to them about the new things that we were bringing to the market, we sort of had permission to, to do that with them. But at the consumer level, you know, very, very uh, low levels of direct awareness. They know that their FIs are there and, you know, they see us no different than they see an Interac or a Visa or a MasterCard, you know, a place where they can use their, their credentials to get access to their money. So somebody super smart once told me that um, every conference season sort of brings a new banking channel, but never is there ever a, a banking channel that sunsets. And um, it's interesting because, you know, obviously being kind of centric to the, the ATM world, that would have been the banking channel du jour at some point in time. Your footprint, your distribution through the ATM network probably was viewed as like maybe one of the most important points of differentiation, right, on retail banking distribution at, at some point in time. I just wondered if you want to comment on it, the current state of it. Is it, you know, has that changed? Where's Where's it kind of rank? And um, do you see that evolving? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I certainly can. Uh, but if you'll indulge me for a minute, uh, I'll maybe even go a little bit back in time. So long before FICONX existed, uh, the Exchange Network came to Canada when a bunch of the, or all of, in fact, the credit unions in British Columbia, and at the time, the Bank of British Columbia, which is now part of HSBC Canada, uh, were struggling with the thing that was the latest technical innovation in financial services, the thing that was you know, in the market promising to fundamentally change the way consumers experienced financial services, access their money, uh, gave them convenience, and so on. Uh, so we're talking early 80s. Um, and that at the time was was the ATM. Before that, uh, long before you were born, Clayton, uh, people had to you know get enough money on a Friday night so to last them for the weekend. Because if they ran out, they didn't have any way to get it uh, other than maybe writing a check uh, midday Sunday. You'd have to wait until the bank opened on uh, on Monday, and you lined up for hours to see a teller to cash your your paycheck. Um, so back then, like that that amount of disruption and the change in in the network that was, you know. Uh, again, making significant modifications to the way consumers were ex experiencing financial services is really echoing today. So the same sort of things are, are happening. There are new technologies that are changing the way uh, uh, the consumers are accessing their financial resources, uh, doing their planning, interacting with, with their financial services uh, institutions. Uh, and that's digital in, in nature and it's mobile and it's based on your smartphone and all of those things that we're very familiar with. So, yeah, you're right. I'm not sure whether that was me that told you that, but I have said that very many times, uh, you know, that channels very rarely disappear in financial services. We're certainly seeing a decline in, in the use of ATMs, but there are still over 60,000 ATMs in Canada. Uh, and there are still millions of transactions uh, that are being processed on that. So if you looked at, at the curve, the growth of those or the lack thereof, um, there are certainly uh, declining usage of that channel. So I would say it's declining in both use and utility. Um, so the frequency of use is dropping, uh, you know, and, and not just driven by sort of the macroeconomic, but certainly impacted, uh, you know, rapidly by, uh, by our, our fund with COVID in the last uh, number of months. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's declining, but it's also nowhere near disappearing. 
uh, you know, cash is still a significant part of, of the economy. Uh, there are still large numbers of businesses that, you know, for which cash is, you know, the major mechanism of exchange of, uh, of value. Uh, and, and so sure, yeah, things, things are dropping. Um, you know, the, quite frankly, for, for quite a long while, if you normalize for the COVID impact, for quite a long while, the channel has been declining at five to 6% per year. And that's pretty consistent uh, across. But we, you know, again, we're a long way from, from this thing tipping over the edge and becoming irrelevant. People still take cash out, people still put cash in, in the bank accounts and so on. No, totally appreciate that context. And yeah, yeah, that was was you that I was referring to. I had heard that from you. <laughs> so you should you can trademark that catchphrase. Um, so. So on that note, with the kind of the next evolution of Fikenex and kind of what you're trying to build on top of the exchange network, do you want to maybe go into a little bit more detail on that, kind of what, what you're doing there? And it's, it's kind of a neat way of innovating on a, on a legacy asset. I mean, it, it really, uh, you know, was that it's sort of your classical uh, strategic planning exercise uh, that we undertook. And quite frankly, we continue to evolve and, and update as time goes on. So, uh, again, when, when I was first brought in, you know, by the board of directors of Ficonex uh, with a mandate to sort of, you know, ass assess the organization, figure out what could be next. Uh, you know, they had realized that the, the growth of, of the transaction based business, the what we call our legacy business, the exchange network, wasn't a positive slope. Uh, and so they weren't prepared for this to, you know, just watch it uh, uh, decline to the point where it was no longer sufficiently relevant to be uh, worth the time and, and, and effort. So they basically tasked me with building a team and doing the work and including some work from, from themselves uh, to try and figure out what else was possible and what could be done. And in my experience, the first thing you do, the first place you look uh, is into the most important assets of the organization. So we did a bunch of work to figure out what those were and really distilled them down into two things that I've already alluded to. Uh, you know, the first is we had a technology, so we had a set of payment rails uh, and there aren't very many organizations in the country that have existing payment rail, you know, technology and processes uh, and, uh, you know, and all the support infrastructure that allows the interchange of value uh, between financial institutions, uh, and yet we we had one of those, and and so that had to be on the list. Uh, and the second thing was really that collaborative predisposition of the of the more than at the time 170 or so financial institutions that were all members of the exchange network and all had you know sort of this differing view that they could leverage uh, you know in in areas that weren't you know highly competitive or uh, didn't necessarily bear the great opportunity for differentiation. They could, you know, leverage collaboration to help them keep their costs down, share the risk, speed to market, uh, and those sort of things. So as we sat there and reflected on how we might do that, um, you know, we did what all ex, uh, you know, former techie guys like myself do. You think about the technology, uh, and so quite simply, we we thought to ourselves, what if we just took the the existing rails, which were very legacy technology, right? For, uh, the speeds and feeds folks, it's based on ISO 8583, a long ancestor of ISO 20022 that everyone hears so much about these days. Uh, and we thought if we could expose the capabilities of the existing network as, you know, a more modern open uh, mechanism like APIs um, that we could use as a point of integration for at the, you know, the new ATM of the day, the fintech services. Uh, that there must be an opportunity for us to do some of those things that we've done before. You know, help the financial institutions, minimize their time to market, uh, decrease their risk, share the risk among a number of parties, uh, decrease the costs associated with it, and, uh, and hopefully improve their value proposition as they face their customers in the market. 
to help with either retention or attractive of, uh, of new members to their, uh, to their uh, franchise. So that's what we've been doing. Yep. Cool. And how's it played out? Has it been kind of as you would hope to see is the, the FI interest and ultimately, I guess, your success at the member or the user sort of client of the FI level? Yeah, it's, it's very tech startup-y, uh, Clayton, you know, and, and we've we've had some, you know, huge wins and success. Probably the thing that I'm most pleased with is the ongoing, uh, you know, support of the financial institutions who are in. Like we literally, uh, you know, you talk about, you know, us crossing paths uh, many times in hotel lobbies and, and so on across the country. Uh, a lot of that, uh, you know, back in 2015, early 2016, we were going around all these financial institutions, sitting in CEO offices and saying, we got this crazy idea. Uh, but you know, you basically own us. And so we thought it was probably a good idea to tech and check with you and see whether that idea resonated with you and whether you thought it was something, uh, that you'd be interested in. So we raised a few million bucks, quite frankly, very, very quickly to do that and build the MVP version of the platform and get it into the market and so on. So all of that has been, you know, playing out, you know, very much as, as we anticipated. Uh, we've had a couple of bumps in the road with some of the services that we've brought to the market, but, uh, you know, we've also had some. Uh, you know, knocking out of the park, uh, runaway success. We've uh, one of the services that we, we brought to the market is this, uh, we call Tunnel Chat. So we call our platform Tunnel, T U N L, with a dot at the end. Uh, and then we tack services onto the end of it. So Tunnel Chat's an AI based uh, chatbot uh, support solution. Uh, and, you know, a little bit of good luck and hopefully a good measure of good planning. Um, when the world's going through a global pandemic and need to find new and innovative ways to service their customers in a uh, in a in a way that doesn't require face-to-face -face, uh, interaction, uh, we've been thrilled. In fact, we just had our, our latest uh, customer Valley Credit Union in Atlanta, Canada, go live with their bot Val uh, uh, this morning. So, uh, lots of interest in a in a great little uh, little pipeline there. Very cool, um, very very cool indeed. So uh, I had a couple more questions around kind of the difference between sort of this like you know longer tail of like the tier two and tier three institutions, how they innovate versus big ones. But I'll maybe pause that and kind of jump into the the meat of this and kind of your big idea you wanted to uh, wanted to stump for today. So wh why don't we tra transition to that, right? So you're and I mean to be fair, you pretty much almost did run some banks, right? You were pretty close to the top so it's not that not even that hypothetical if you if you ran the bank what what would you what would you be all in on well i mean i, I think it's probably good to to paint just a little bit of context first and you know and then I, i've shared a bit of my background uh you're right ran all of uh, sort of back office operations for the meridian credit union from the time it was founded until uh until 2010 so you know did uh, cut my teeth in in some regards in that stuff that space uh so i think i have, have some good insights uh so it's it's that tier two view and I'm, I'm sure as you do more of these podcasts you're gonna get lots of folks who are talking about you know either banks specifically and in some cases maybe even larger banks but i I thought it important to kind of put that tier two lens uh, on this. Um, you know, the other thing I'll, I'll say is my, my big idea isn't a product or a service. I mean, I, there will be hundreds of people. And, you know, if we sat for 10 minutes, you and I could come up with a number of, you know, either product or service ideas. And, and so I wanted to maybe diverge a little bit from that and, and talk more about uh, approach and, and reflect on something that I've used a number of times uh, in my career. Um, I'd love to claim that I invented the idea, but of, but of course I didn't. It's, it's something that is commonly called the, the tiger team concept. Um, and, you know, military's been using it for lots of years and there's actually, uh, you know, a number of uh, examples of it being used effectively in business as well. But I feel like it's something that's, uh, you know, maybe lost its uh, um, awareness and, you know, it's maybe been replaced by other things like Agile and, you know, PMBOK type you know, project management as, as a mechanism to get things done. 
Um, so for me, you know, the, the, the idea is really to uh, create this specialized cross-functional team that you then, you know, charge with, uh, you know, solving a fairly significant problem or getting something to the point where it's, uh, it's ready to go in. But importantly, that you kind of hive them off uh, from the, the majority of the organization. Uh, and and then do what you need to to make sure that they're appropriately resourced and uh, and and appropriately uh, protected. Um, you know, so at, at at the crux of the reason that I choose something like this is is my recognition, my firsthand experience that financial institutions, you know, are sort of by definition and and by their nature uh, risk averse, slow changing, uh, you know, often bureaucratic organisms, for lack of a, a better metaphor, uh, and and quite frankly. Thank goodness that they are, because uh, you know, as as consumers, uh, we need them to be like that's that's where the stability and the soundness of the financial services infrastructure uh, in the country comes from. Uh, and you know, uh, you know, why else would we be willing to put our money with them? And you know, if you think back in time, it's that's exactly the reason they used to build you know branches with big pillars out front and you know walk down any main street in uh, in any town in the country, and and you'll see those kinds of things. It was all about making sure that folks were were comfortable. And confident that these organizations were going to do their best to, to protect their financial resources. Um, and, and like any you know, <laughs> living organism, these organisms have immune systems. Uh, and, you know, it's the job of that immune system to sort of uh, reject new things that are coming in uh, and, and protect the organizations. And anyway, whether that's, you know, they're the regulation frameworks that are built around these financial institutions or whether it's their risk management teams or their adjudication processes or whatever those things are. They're, they're there to make sure that, uh, you know, the organization doesn't change too radically and unexpectedly and have unintended consequences. Yeah. And as a result, they really act. Um, to be barriers to change. So, you know, if you if you think about the opportunity here, uh, it, it, it's really based around this concept of try and make sure that the idea you're working on, whether it is a product or a service or anything else, can get to the point where it's sufficiently well understood, where it's had the opportunity to solve for those things, uh, you know, that would otherwise perhaps stomp it out too early in its life. Uh, and get it to the point where there's good, strong commitment to, to move it forward, but without, you know, letting it fall prey to the naysaying or, or the, you know, the immune system elements too early in its process. It totally makes sense. And I think, I think when I did my, my research on this, where the word came from, I, I believe it originated, but from NASA at some point during the kind of space race, um, and to, totally makes sense. In some ways, in your initial point relative to the product and the service ideas, these innovation ideas that we might discuss on the show or you know wherever, this is kind of the follow-up question of that, right? Which is why is that not happening, or how would it, you know, what would you have to do to have it happen, right? Is this? And so, um, on that note, is there's at least two things that I think are important about this from my perspective. I'd love you to kind of fill in the blanks where you, where you think I'm off. One is a you're taking an idea, right? If you're going to even form this team and put it against it, you're kind of prioritizing that idea and carving it out from the business as usual flow, right? Assuming it gets enough attention and it's kind of a little bit inoculated from the normal immune system activity. But two is probably the cross-functional nature of these teams, right? In that generally, in my experience in doing something new or hard within a bank, you really, there's a lot of, it takes a village to raise a child, right? And so there's all these different groups that you need at the table to do it properly because you you have to check a few boxes to make these things come reality is there other sort of 
aspects to this or are those well so i i mean i, I think there's there's really two pieces uh that we're talking about the first is sort of the, the formation piece which is some of what you're talking about how do you structure them who should be involved and you know how do you how to get them up and going uh and to be honest I, like i think that's the easier one uh i mean you need some influence you certainly need senior level uh you know sponsorship you need some buy-in into the approach uh and there are like, don't get me wrong, there are financial institutions effectively doing this. They often call this the lab or the incubator or the whatever, and they put them at Communitech or the DMZ or at Mars and, you know, and, and try and do some of this work. So it's, it's really in support of that kind of approach uh, that I'm advocating this. But you're absolutely right that you have to be very, very uh, purposeful about the way you craft the membership of this. And it's not just about, oh, we're going to get a few product people and some technology people together in a room and say, hey, go figure out how to put you know, PFM or uh, robo-advising or whatever in there. You have to start with the expectation that sooner or later, the idea has to actually come to life within the bank. Uh, and so it, it will have to pass the regulatory test and it will have to, you know, clear the risk management uh, processes and it will have to, you know, pass the business test and they need to calculate an MPV and, you know, they need to do all of those things that are there. So that has to be part of uh, you know, both the mandate of the group is not just, you know, figure out how to have a cool little new thing, but it's also how to have this as a viable piece of the business. Uh, and then you have to resource it accordingly. Right. And that means, you know, both from a human resource perspective, put the right people with the right backgrounds, uh, you know, to work on this thing. Uh, but also, you know, whatever other resources they need to be able to, you know, test and try and fail and and reset and research and all of the other uh, pieces that are that are going to come to life with that, uh, and then uh, and then go away, and uh, you know come back with whatever the right time horizon is, uh, and be prepared to then go through that that next chunk, which I think is the harder, and that's the the completion thing, right? Where they have to pass those tests and they have to you know get get things going and uh, and actually bring it to life in the bank. You don't get to skip that just because you sat off, you know in. A uh, nice lofty looking building in Waterloo or downtown Toronto or wherever. And that's a really good point. But that's where I view this idea as in some ways fundamentally different than what we have seen with the idea of innovation teams and labs, right? Is I, I think at the risk of being controversial, lots of those that I've seen have tended towards being really only about idea generation, right? Mm -hmm. Not really about like broader at scale operational execution. And I think that's been a weakness of them. I know there's certain financial institutions, even in this country, that being in the innovation lab is almost like a way to never get operationalized at that financial institution, right? It's so far on, you know, so far separated from, from this, this hard work of doing it and doing it the right way. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think with every idea, you can find examples of uh, organizations that have done good jobs of doing it uh, and organizations that have done lousy jobs of doing it, right? There are organizations whose project management offices become the work prevention uh, department. Uh, there are also organizations whose, you know, enterprise agile, uh, you know, leader is causing more problems than, uh, than solving. So uh, I, I think you're right, though. I, I think it is uh, it is because many have not been focused on the ultimate goal of real commercialization and actually operationalization uh, of the ideas from the beginning. And they've simply been playing around, you know, a little bit. And I think some of that is just nothing more than the evolution of, you know, fintech in the space and the ideas in, in the early days of fintech, early days, of, you know, within the last few years, there's been as much attention just on the, you know, the, uh, uh, 
get, being able to, to make the claim that you're doing something and trying something uh, as opposed to actually bringing it to life. Uh, a term that I've heard and that I love and that I've stolen uh, you know, is uh, innovation theater, right? Where people aren't really seeking innovation to have, affect real change. They, they just want to be seen to be innovative. So the more things you've got on the list and you know, the more frequently there's an announcement, the better you feel about yourselves. Yeah, no, it to- totally makes sense. And to like build on that point, there's actually one of our banks that, that we've worked with. One of the innovation people started a career in procurement. And it kind of doesn't make sense, right? If you're going to fail at an innovation team, you get all these like product management, conference attending type, you know, shooting guns people to do that. But like having a real and practical grounded experience in how the organization like buys and evaluates things, like that's actually truly what you need if you're going to run around and try and engage with, you know, dozens of fintech partners and bring them into the bank. Like that's actually the core competency. It's not really even like, you know, having this big vision for the future of AI and banking. It's like being able to get through the first layer of the immune system. Uh, I can think of a few parts uh, of any organization, but certainly financial institutions that would be more ripe for innovation than the procurement processes. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think if you were, you know, counter to this whole, I mean, because I, d- I don't like the idea that, you know, banks are going to go away or they're going to this Netflix blockbuster moment because it's just not going to happen. But if you want to think of it, the more intelligent way, which is some financial institutions are going to be wildly more successful than others in the future and wildly more successful than they are today, right? And that would be something I would look at, right? Do you have a, a specialized procurement track? Do you have a lighter agreement? You know, th- those kinds of things, you, innovations you could do in procurement to still, you know, manage all your risk and do all the stuff you have to do, but allow things to get in, you know, a little bit and stage gated and, and move along the chain, I think is a, a really good way to run a business. Yeah. And, and I, I agree. Uh, and, and I agree with your you know overall uh, idea that, uh, you know, banks are going anywhere anytime soon. They're certainly not going to be this mass extinction uh, event. Having said that, I think, I think there are many, you know, organizations who fail to adapt and, you know, realize what the new world is going to be all about that in fact do risk, uh, you know, themselves going out of business. Um, and, you know, in, in our world, certainly in, in North America and, and definitely in Canada, uh, you know, banks, credit unions, uh, you know, trust companies, et cetera, uh, so very rarely, you know, fail in a spectacular way. Uh, but they, they cease to exist in other ways. They get combined into other organizations. They, you know, either by their choice or by the choice of, of regulators and, and so on, uh, you know, so those ideas don't get to carry forward in the same way as, uh, as others do. So, and I think keeping up with the innovation tract and understanding how to evolve, not just the product and service piece, but the how we do business here piece is a huge part of that. Totally. Um, so I, I want to, I'll start here and I want to expand on this. I think it's an interesting conversation in general, but specific to your idea and around this like tiger teams and, and, you know, kind of these cross-functional teams. Do you, I get a sense that this might be particularly relevant to these smaller institutions. And I think this is probably counterintuitive if you're sitting on the outside, right? Like these are, and, and by tier two, I think, just to put a bow on this, we're talking probably like sub $20 billion institutions, but probably the heart of your world is probably like one to $5 billion institutions. Is that the context? Yeah. I mean, the, uh, the largest credit union in the country is less than 30 billion or 20, yeah. Van City's 20, can't remember the last number, 27 billion would be a, a guess somewhere around there. And there's a, there's a chunk of them, like, you know, the top 10 or 15 are, are going to be like that. If you went down to the top, you know, 25, you're, you're down to the billion dollar. Uh, but there's a couple hundred, you know, credit units that are, that are less than a billion dollars too. Yeah, no, for sure. 
Um, my hometown credit union, bigger in district regional credit union, I think would be like 300 million in assets um, yeah. as a as a point on the map. So so what I clearly, think is clearly about about half of that is uh, is your personal portfolio. Yeah, something like that. Lots of cows, lots of farmland. Um, so on that note, though, I think what's counterintuitive, what my experience has been kind of this four years of dealing with FIs, you know, and we deal with ultra tier ones, right? So in certain cases, we actually have separate agreements with two banks under the same bank's name. You know, there's two divisions that bank that have different CAOs, like ultra scale. But what I think is ironic versus dealing with small banks is that those big banks, when you're dealing with a line of business, some of these other functions get kind of subscaled into the line of business, right? So the treasury banking group will have its own sort of lawyers and procurement people and infosec people, as opposed to if you walk into like a $20 billion institution, it's kind of institution wide. So in some ways, it's actually easier to bring this orbit of people together with context to get these things done and figured out and executed in these bigger environments, for, for at least in my experience, than it is in sometimes these small ones. Sometimes it's, you know, it's so that if I'm the business process, you know, if I'm the business partner for legal at a, at a $15 billion institution, I'm actually like supporting, you know, wealth management some days and commercial banking some days and retail some days and insurance if I'm in that or whatever it might be. It's actually a little bit harder to get aligned around. This thing. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, I think you rightly identify the fact that there are special considerations for these tier two guys. And, and there's some pros and there's some cons for sure. Uh, you know, they are smaller organizations. And, and so, you know, at times their resources are more constrained. Uh, they might not have access to the sort of same, you know, caliber or quantity of expertise. You know, I think your legal example uh, is, is a great one of those. Um, and, and in fact, because you've got a smaller total number of people, you know, this idea of sequester them or second them into this group for some period of time is often much more difficult. You know, because there's not a team of 20 people and you're taking one out uh, and they're fine. You know, it's a loss prevention group and they've got two people or three people uh, if they're lucky. Uh, and so if you take them out, guess what? Everybody else is going to rebel because, you know, they just got an extra four hours worth of work to, to do every day. Um, so, you know, that sort of stuff, I, I think, is is harder. I think the uh, the idea that it's easier to wrap your arms around, like you need fewer decision makers. You know, if you get the CEO on side with doing something, then a lot of the barriers kind of vanish or disappear or whoever the, the influential executive is. Uh, you know, and, and that certainly is is a plus for them. But the other one that, that I'd argue, and this is a little bit to sort of the, the way that FiConnex operates is, is again, that predisposition to collaboration that exists among these tier two financial institutions gives them a unique opportunity uh, to when they're working on something together, they can actually create a cross-organizational, cross-functional team. Um, so that they can take a, you know, a risk specialist from one organization and a product specialist from another organization and maybe a technology you know, partner like ourselves and collectively they can you know, do the work that needs to be done. They don't get to abdicate their own responsibilities for due diligence or you know, managing their regulatory requirements and that kind of stuff, but the actual hard work of chipping away to get to a point where then they can make the decisions and do the actual operationalization stuff uh, you know, can, can oftentimes be made better by these working groups that, that cross the, the traditional barriers uh, of organization to organization. I don't think you very often see that. It's very, I, think it, I think it's rare and, and it's on massive scope things like payments modernization or, you know, Interact uh, Instant or, you know, like massive things that are affecting the entire market. You'll see some of the large FIs uh, end up in situations where that's, that's important. But the smaller guys do that as a matter of course of business every single day.
Totally. And, and uh, for a number of reasons, right? I guess one, because there's often more constrained geographic footprints so you are literally not even competing with each other in, in any sense, but also because there's a, a, a cool, completely different kind of culture and value set in the, in the credit union world. But in addition to that, very used to having a consolidated sort of manufacturing side of their business, right? Where they all use it, some kind of common outsourced manufacturer, so to speak, of different aspects of their business line. Yeah, they're, they're certainly more accustomed, you're speaking specifically with the credit unions, they're more accustomed to relying on third parties or these sort of ecosystem players uh, to support their business in, in a sort of more diverse way. Uh, but, you know, make no mistake, the, the smaller banks that are part of these collaborative uh, organizations are also that way. Uh, you know, when, when we sit at, at our advisory committee table, uh, we have you know, Manulife Bank, we have Canadian Western Bank, we have Alterna Bank and Modus Bank, we have, you know, a number of banks that are sitting there right alongside the credit unions. And sometimes they, they shake their heads at, you know, at the differences that they don't necessarily understand of, of the other systems. Uh, but they're, they're similarly motivated to try and find better ways to be in the market with stuff that's good for their customers, uh, you know, and helps their whether it's our efficiency ratio or, uh, you know, their competitiveness or any of those things. So it's, it's not a, uh, you know, it's, it's certainly evident in the credit union system, but it's not a credit union only uh, sort of thing. Totally makes sense. So let's go, let's maybe go back up to 10,000 square feet on that idea. And I know this is something where I think I've, you know, said dumb things to you over the years that you've disagreed with. But my sense as an outsider is that, you know, especially when you go in and you think about the overall, digitization of financial services and the technology burden that that is just going to be required to compete in the future, in my opinion, and all these things. It seems to me that it gets harder and harder every year to be a smaller, um, that I guess just the burden of those things relative to the size of your balance sheet changes. Um, and, and I'm just curious if you want to unpack that at 10,000 square feet, the difference of, you know, kind of innovating and digitizing in a, in a tier, tier two institution versus at you know, mega scale with a tier one institution. Do, do you want to kind of maybe help unpack that if that's that's true, if there's kind of a decreasing, you know, economies to scale on it or how, how you think it's going to work? Well, I, I, think, I think it depends what it is. Um, you know, there are some things in this world where scale, quite frankly, is all that matters, right? If you're, if you're doing, you know, clearing the national AFT system, Having, you know, a fewer number of parties who are having to, you know, push the buttons to make that system work when it's, you know, millions of times a day and the cost efficiency drivers are primarily there and the opportunity for differentiation is approaching zero. Um, then, then yeah, I mean, I, I think size and scale are, are really all that matters. Uh, but I'll be honest, I, I've seen successful business models at almost every size. Um, there's a one branch credit union in the lower mainland of British Columbia that I won't name uh, specifically, uh, but they had a leader uh, who was incredibly attuned to technology, uh, you know, and was, you know, cheap as chips, uh, you know, very focused on efficiency and, and cost and had a very, very clear view of the, the customer base that he was targeting uh, with the rest of his organization. And he did some remarkable things and had a nice, tidy, little profitable organization who delivered great value, uh, you know, to the constituents that it was uh, was marked for. I've also seen some struggle and not be able to find their way and, you know, really not have anything different to add and everything they've offered to their customers has really come from somebody who said, here, you should give this and they've gone, oh, okay, I guess I'll do that if everybody else is doing it. 
Um, you know, I, I I certainly think, and I don't think I'm the only one that thinks there's there's sort of a point of inflection at that billion dollar uh, mark that you know it sort of changes your world fairly dramatically. I think there's another one that happens about five billion dollars. Uh, you know, and and then you know once you get a, up above the you know fifty billion, um, then you're playing in the bigger fields and and it's absolutely you know about how you can get scale and distribution and and those sorts of things so there's then you see a bit of a flywheel of of growth and acquisition or diversification and those sorts of things that go on so i think there's some and some i don't think it's i don't think it's black and white i don't think it's impossible to run a small organization uh you know with uh uh, with a relatively small balance sheet in a in a way that's both profitable and delivers value to your customers um i just i don't think it's an absolute well, and I think there's an argument that in the future, if the sort of supply side of banking continues to innovate, right, and there's these really great platforms on payments and on customer authentication, all the stuff that we can all build on, even open banking itself, it should become marginally easier and better for anybody, whether I'm a single coder in my basement or whether I'm a regional credit union, to have a highly differentiated experience. And my cost of executing against that should go down over time right to, to some extent if if the technology plays out a certain way and there becomes these big platforms we can build stuff on yeah i i think i'm inclined to agree uh, obviously as is the case in many parts of financial services uh, legacy infrastructures are a drag on that uh, and so you know in particular if you were a very small organization and you could find a way clear to, to really put in a truly innovative you know core banking platform you know blockchain based ledger fully api microservice exposed and you had that as a platform then you could go shopping around the world uh, you know to find the absolute best and unique uh, products and services that you can bring to your customers um, yeah I, I, I think that absolutely is there you got to get a little bit over that or you got to find a way to abstract it you know a little bit of a uh, foreshadowing of some of the stuff we're working on is we think there's a way to sort of abstract those kinds of things and build a common services layer that allows those financial institutions without having to forklift their old uh, infrastructures or, or you know um, forget the investments that they've made there uh, share some risk and and share some reward going forward but yeah, I mean, I think that's what it's what it's all about. The amount of innovation that's out there. You do the, you know, I missed the uh, the conference circuit uh, it, just before, within a couple of weeks before uh, the lockdown. I was in British Columbia, and then immediately before being in British Columbia, I was actually in in Europe. I was at the the Finnovate Europe conference in uh, in February, uh, and some of the stuff that's going on over there, where they have an open banking infrastructure and uh, and platform, and folks have lived through the well, the banks hate it because the regulators imposed it stuff, and they were starting to see that there's actually a way to monetize some of the investments that they had to make, and uh, you know, and then there was a, a group of fintechs who had you know immediate access to a larger. Uh, you know, potential customer bases because of the standards that were there. Uh, it's it started to get uh, you know pretty exciting over there, and I think we've got that to look forward to. I was at the the Canadian Open Banking Expo uh, last week, and you know a lot of talk about uh, you know uh, how the country needs to move forward and get ourselves past the uh, sort of burden or the hurdles that are immediately in front of us around the regulatory framework and uh, you know the liability sharing and like how we're going to do that, what the rules are, uh, permissioning consumer, uh, you know, authorization for sharing their data and, and all those rights around that, but get past that as quickly as we can so that we can start playing in that same space. No, I to- totally agree. And it feels like the momentum has picked way back up on open banking in Canada just over the last little bit. And I know there's one of the senators has been super aggressive on that. And it seems like at the government level, it's kind of picked back up the last 
couple of weeks. There's been some green shoot. Well, Senate, Senator Colin yeah. Deacon has been beating this drum for uh, for quite a number of years, but it is amazing what a change in finance minister can do to yeah. a file like, uh, like open banking yeah. and uh, consumer directed finance. Uh, the new minister certainly seems very anxious for her team to uh, to make good progress. On yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Uh, one just quick kind of bonus question before we switch into sort of the closing sequence. I, I, I mean, I guess you're maybe biased to this, but I'm kind of curious to hear your your answer anyways my big theory of bank and and fintech disruption and, and the life cycles of banks is you can kind of boil it down to it's really driven by the cost of acquisition of a financial services customer is always going to be insanely high relative to a lot of other industries and once you get a customer the only thing you can ever do to make a business model work is to sell the marginal product right so you get these things and then the third order effect is as the number of marginal products go up your economics get better the products all get worse and then you kind of are ripe for disruption right sort of the, to some extent it's the circle of life it's been very interesting now that we're so far into the first big wave of consumer fintech if you look at somebody like wealth simple they've gone from doing disrupting one very narrow thing and doing it way better to now literally daily it feels like they announce another effectively banking product right which kind of puts you on that path in my mind what do you think the trend is? And and I, I guess this is where I think you're biased, maybe because you in some ways are, are allowing banks to kind of, or your FIs to add marginal product. Do you think that that's the, the path that, that these tier two institutions should be on? Should they be casting a wider net in terms of offerings? Or do you think they should be kind of culling and coming back to their core and choosing some things to be really good at? And and I just wonder where you think we are in that that pendulum. So I, I mean, I, I think, Financial institutions, traditional financial institutions, who I think you're talking about, uh, should continue to be highly focused on being the most trustworthy, the most stable, the most consistent, uh, you know, with with excellent uh, customer service. And then they should be figuring out every possible way uh, to stay connected with their customers as their customers make choices about new and different ways for them to interact in the financial world. So if they I'll give you I'll give you a personal example. Um, I opened a Wealthsimple account when they first opened. I've never done a darn thing with it. But the other day I thought, you know what? I'm going to put a couple of grand in, in there and I'm going to, and just to, for no other reason than to, to see how it works. And, you know, they've gone unicorn and they're billion dollars, they're Canadian company, like all of the, all of the right stuff. Um, so I, I can't, right? I do business uh, with uh, Modus Bank. Right. Used to work at Meridian. Meridian started a, a bank. They've got fantastic, not a plug for them, but they got fantastic rates on their uh, high interest savings accounts. Um, so I got you know a bunch of mad money sitting over there. Uh, and I try and set up the mechanism for my money to get moved from my Modus Bank account over to my Simple account. And the answer is, sorry, you can't do that. Can't do that because two things. Number one, it's a digital bank. There's no such thing as, you know, send me a PDF of a check with a microline on it. Uh, and, and your name and address and, and so on, so I can confirm. And there's and when they print their statements, they don't include my account number. So the solution is go to Meridian, ask them if they can do a custom statement for you with my name and address, or or create a check for you. You know, neither of which makes any sense. So um, you know that, and that's part of that's Meridian's fault because they're not doing what they need to do to make it easy for me to make different choices. Uh, and, you know, maybe there's good motivation for them to do that. I suspect in the long run, that's, that's not the case. And part of it is well simple. It's because when I sent them the note and said, I need a solution to this, because here's the, the reality. The answer I got was, Oh no, can't you go and ask them to do something custom for you? Which of course they should know the answers. Uh, no. So I may well just end up deleting the account. I, I hope I can get around it, but 
So that sort of interoperability of, of services, we need to make it easier for consumers uh, to make other choices. And, and we need to make them feel like when we have a choice, that choice should be the number one choice. But you can't expect, it's never been true that you know consumers had their entire financial relationships with a single financial institution. Right. I think when I was working at the HEPCO credit union, when I first started working there, you know, the average was five different financial institutions. We had a credit card from one and, you know, the payroll went into their real bank account and they, you know, used the HEPCO account for savings or hiding money from their wife or, you know, whatever. Um, but so, you know, I, th I think that's the big drive. And I think it's one of the big promises of community consumer directed finance is to allow the consumers the ability to choose. But then you got to be really good and you got to stay sticky. Otherwise, you're just going to end up disintermediated and you're going to be adding no value. All you're going to be doing, you know, is the traditional maintain balances and calculate interest. Uh, and that's not where, you know, any marginal opportunity exists. Yeah. No, it makes sense. Um, that, that's super cool uh, perspective. So I guess just kind of transition to a bit of a closeout here. I'm curious, what was your uh, the first job you ever had? Well, I guess technically the first job was delivering, uh, you know, community newspapers. But um, if you set that one aside, I spent quite a few years working in fast food. Uh, my very first uh, sort of real job was uh, flipping burgers at a, uh, at a Burger King in Streetsville, Ontario. And what, is there any lessons from that experience that you kind of still bring to work every day? I, I mean, I, I think so. I mean, I, I can remember, uh, you know, learning uh, about work ethic. I remember, you know, desperately wanting to go and spend the weekend at the cottage uh, with my parents one time and I was booked to work and I didn't want to work and I couldn't find anybody to take it. So I called in sick and they caught me on it. And, you know, I was, uh, you know, made to both feel very embarrassed and, and not. So I, I think I learned some stuff about uh, work ethic in, in those days. Also learned, you know, ab about uh, relationships. I, I had some really, really good friends that I met there. Uh, you know, and I, I did that a few times. Actually, the one of the jobs I had after that was working for a, uh, a fried chicken place called Dixie Lee Fried Chicken and Seafood. Uh, and if everyone had their own, that's, uh, that's where I met my uh, now wife. Oh, wow. At the ripe old age of 16 years old. I was, not her. <laughs> uh, we'll, leave, we'll leave that off the record of how much younger or older she was. Uh, sounds scandalous at the time. <laughs> so, uh, and then how'd that transition into you? Um, I'm curious at what point now being a kingpin of the tier two financial institution community in Canada, what, what was the moment that kind of led you down the path that you're on? I think you kind of hinted at this earlier, but. Yeah, you know, you know so I, I'm not... Um... I'm not sure there's there is sort of a single moment. I've, I've always been a believer that you know you need to be open to opportunities that present themselves, and and you know these people who try and lay out you know their career with all these steps or have these you know large aha moments, uh, you know I'm, I'm sure they happen, but uh, but it's it's never kind of been the way that it was for me. My career's kind of evolved, and I've you know I think been courageous enough to take opportunities when they presented themselves. Uh, you know, worked really hard not to get sort of stuck. Uh, you know, in the same uh, job for a long time. Uh, now, having said that, I've worked in a small number of places for fairly long periods of time, uh, but I've had you know great opportunities to do a number of different things in those places. So, and I'm not a big fan of the folks you know who uh, who like to jump job every couple of years and move to different organizations. Uh, but I, I do think you need to be willing to to reach out and try. I remember, you know, when I was at. Uh, Meridian and, you know, taking an opportunity. I could have gone down the IT path. I could have gone down the operations path. Uh, and I chose the operations path just because I felt it like it was the opportunity that was going to broaden my horizons, lead me to, you know, have more experience doing some things that I hadn't done before. I think, you know, re remaining open to trying this stuff, you know, like the procurement person leading the innovation team, like that's, that sounds great to me. 
uh, way, way greater than somebody who's going to be a narrow expert doing the same thing. And, you know, there's lots of people who make great careers doing the opposite. It just, it was, it was never really right for me. No, to- totally makes sense. Eh? It's a good lesson for all of us to keep in the back of our minds. And just sort of finally, I'm curious what the dumbest thing you've ever done is that maybe turned out later to be a good idea. Well, there are a few that I'd be prepared to speak about uh, when the uh, session was being recorded. But I, you know, I, I do, I do remember one time. Uh, so after I left Meridian, I went and worked for a company called the Threshold Financial Technologies that then was bought by Brinks. And ultimately, uh, Brinks sold most of it to a company called Direct Cash. And now that's part of Cartronics. But when Brinks was just buying it, there was this opportunity in Amsterdam, in the Netherlands, uh, to you know, put forward a proposal for this massive, big outsourced managed services, a bunch of the big banks, the three main banks in the Netherlands, uh, ING, um, ABN ANRO, and I can't remember who the third one was. Uh, but the three big ones were kind of saying, hey, let's let's consolidate all of our cash servicing and armored car and ATM servicing and all that stuff into us into a single platform. Um, so Brinks had just decided that they were going to buy Threshold and we were an ATM managed services company. And uh, so they said, hey, we should put a bid in for this. We had absolutely no idea other than a couple of, you know, half hour sessions on the back of a napkin uh, of how we might do this. We flew over there with like, I don't know what it was, maybe four or five days before we had to do a presentation to this big panel of uh, experts from all these banks and, and a company that they'd hired to help them do the decision making. And uh, uh, we, we literally didn't have anything. It's the craziest you know, thought that we'd go over there and stand up and put our suits on and do this presentation. Well, in the end, it was uh, you know, a spectacular presentation. We, had, uh, we built a, a business model. We built a technology plan, all that you know, from the time we got on the plane to the time we walked through the door to, to do the presentation. Uh, we ultimately actually used that business plan to, to build a global managed services offering for, for Brinks, uh, and it was great. In the end, the people we went and presented to liked it so much that they just stole all the ideas and did it themselves. But uh, you know, at the end of the day, it was uh, uh, it was crazy at the time, uh, but in the end, it sounded pretty cool. You uh, miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take, as they say. I've heard that before. Is that, is that you? I, I think so. I'm not sure if I said it first or Michael Jordan. It's, it's up up for debate, right. but um, cool. Well, that I think that kind of takes us to times. I mean, I, I super appreciate you taking the time out of your day coming on the show. I think this is really interesting. I think it's super important to shine a little bit of light on the difference between kind of small institutions versus the, the super big and and I think both the headwinds and the opportunities. So it's, I really appreciate your appreciate your input. It is absolutely my pleasure. Uh, it's good to, to see you and chat with you, Clayton. And I uh, can't wait until uh, the world changes a little closer to what we used to call normal so that we can maybe catch up uh, in person sometime soon. Absolutely. Looking forward to it.